welcome to the ASSP Safety Standards and Tech Pubs podcast. This week, we continue our conversation with Brian Hammer, chair of the ASSP TR Z590.5 committee, to discuss putting your active shooter armed assailant response plan into action. Moving on to the activation of the plan, in terms of training your staff to properly carry out that plan, what are some things employers need to do best practices they can employ to ensure that their employees understand the plan and their roles and responsibilities in the event of an incident? Well, we had a hard one uh, in the discussion in the, in the committee on that because, you know, we were afraid that people would try to activate the plan when it shouldn't have been activated or people didn't activate the plan when it should be. The idea here is we want to have a, uh, a a funnel that, you know, any official activation of the plan goes through one person. That doesn't mean that if you're in the warehouse and something happened that you wouldn't be able to, you know, start that plan from activation uh, in that respect. So, again, it, it depends on the facility and how that things do. We did talk a little bit about uh, making sure there were communication devices uh, around the facility that could help do that. Uh, you know, the idea, especially in if, if we were able to control, you know, entrance into the facility by either one or two uh, doors that we may have panic buttons there that would activate, uh, you know, some notification of that was occurring. Those are things that we discussed. So it's very important that when you assess the risk and you come up to develop your plan, you include some of those discussions on how to fully activate that plan. But once the plan is activated, then it has a span of control that, you know, those persons who have been trained in the plan, those who are on that committee are part of that activation plan. Okay. So moving on from that, an active shooter incident has occurred. This is where the guidance in the Tiger Report discusses the activation of your response plans. I wonder if you could kind of walk me through the activation of a plan, what's involved, and what needs to take place during an incident from assigning roles and responsibilities for all the staff involved and just you know what, what that process looks like as an event is taking place. Well, again, it, it will be location-specific based on what you plan. Mm-hmm. But the idea behind that is uh, that when the, the plan is activated, uh, there are certain things that must occur, and, and communication to a uh, first responders is important. Uh, in that plan, we cover about what information should be given to that first responder, uh, most likely E911 operating uh, operator who will then dispatch that, but making sure that, you know, uh, any description of the shooter, uh, the, you know, those types of things. We actually go in there and talk about, you know, you don't talk about the coat, but you may mention the shoes because right. people don't mm-hmm. change their shoes when they might take their coat off. Mm-hmm. So instead of wearing a black leather jacket, I'm now in a T-shirt, those types of things. Um, you know, that's important to, to train on, that, you know, how, how you report that incident and then who would be in charge once that incident would come to a conclusion. Much like if we had a fire or something in our plan, we want to count for our employees, right? So that part of the plan should not be anything surprising to a safety professional. We want to say, okay, how can I account for the people that are in my facility? Now, of course, some, some companies may have a badging system that counts that, that Brian is in the facility because he swiped in and, you know, John is gone because he swiped out, so we okay. don't need to account for John. But obviously, we need to have some ability to access that system. So you might want to say, okay, you know, do I have remote access to some of that information? Um, accounting for those employees uh, is important. It's kind of hard to have a rally point because you never know where that's going to be. Uh, you know, you can plan for uh, locations for people to go to, so you can start to uh, account for them. It's also important to account for any visitors at the facility. I have to say there is a large manufacturing facility uh, in Pella, Iowa, that was basically destroyed by a tornado. Sounds horrific, right? But they had a large amount of visitors the day 
that it was hit by a tornado. And, you know, how do you account for the large amount of visitors who are touring your facility? Um, you know, you might count for the employees because you've got a record of who's there, but boy, that was a difficult task. We want to make sure we have some sort of ability to account for either vendors, visitors, uh, you know, uh, non-employees who may be at our facility. You know, it could be the truck driver in the warehouse who's just there and dropping his load and right, his truck right. to be unloaded. That's, a, that's a certainly an important part. Then we need to have that contact, uh, of course, with law enforcement. So that's where our committee would come into play. We've assigned some of those rules, who's going to be that one point of contact for law enforcement, first responders, uh, and then certainly the media context. We want to make sure who, who's going to discuss with the media uh, is, a, is a big issue. With, with those roles and responsibilities, will a lot of those kind of go to people doing that kind of work in their day-to-day responsibilities? For instance, you know, your HR person would be the point person to keep track of all employees and visitors. Your PR person is going to be that kind of public information officer. Is there kind of guidelines for businesses and in terms of the best employees that fit into these certain roles during and after an incident? We didn't, we didn't point that out in the technical report. Again, our goal was to try to be as neutral to the size of the company as possible. And if you look at the report, um, you know, we assigned the duties to the safety and security uh, committee because uh, we figured that most locations, uh, you know, even the small ones, maybe had a safety committee. And that safety committee maybe looked at the safety things that us safety professionals look at every day. Um, you know, the idea that they have to go out and form a separate security committee just didn't make sense. So we wanted to make sure people understood that, hey, that safety committee is a committee within an organization that can certainly handle that. Mm -hmm. You may have to bring in experts from outside the safety realm, and you may have to bring in the human resource person who's not normally a part of the safety committee. You may have to bring somebody in from accounting who knows about insurance and you know and, you know continuity plans those type of things um, but we didn't want people to have to reinvent the wheel because certainly there are large companies out there uh, on, on our committee we had some people from from very large companies that I could name everybody would know uh, they had all the resources in the world to do whatever they need to uh, one is a uh, hospitality company that's you know one of the biggest names out there uh, you know, they were suggesting uh, all kinds of things that they use at their facility, and that's great. That doesn't work at the company where we've got 20 people. So we wanted to make it as, as neutral as possible to the, mm-hmm. the dollars that they have to spend and, and the size of the company, but also be encouraging for that person to say, hey, it can happen at our location. It doesn't sure. mean we have to have 200 people at our location occur. It could be a disgruntled employee. It could be a dissatisfied customer who comes to our facility. Mm-hmm to take that revenge out uh, and, and put us in harm. So sure. developing that plan is an important part of our safety program, and that's why we think it's a good plan. So it's not necessarily a one-size-fits-all approach, it, but you, you've really got to take a look at your operation and the resources that you have and what works best for you. Yeah, we, we did a lot of interviews with radio stations, and I highlighted uh, in those interviews that obviously I currently now work for a very large company. And when I go to the front door of my company to go to work, I'm confronted by an armed guard. Right. And I have a security badge that swipes to let me know, and it keeps track that I'm in the building. Swipe it to leave, they know I've left the building. My wife works for a manufacturing company. It's a, well, I'm going to say medium-sized, maybe smaller to medium-sized company. I think there's 150-some people who work there. You come in the front door, the first person you meet is my wife. Right. Uh, until recently, she's got a promotion. But until just recently, she was the front door person. Uh, she that would be the the entrance into the facility, and you know that 
there's somebody who needs to be trained on what to look for, but there's, real quick, that there's a person who could be, in fact, the first victim if I came in to settle a score or, or whatever that, you know, my attention would be. They may be after a salesman that did them wrong or they're a supervisor that, you know, terminated them, but to get to that person, they're working their way through the facility, and in that case, uh, they would have had to go on by my wife, and if they were concerned that she would attempt to stop her, that is a concern. So even in small companies, they've got to look at what they have and, and how to, to make uh, things work based on what they have. Absolutely. You mentioned about working with, with outside agencies, first responders and the like. What are some of the best ways businesses can reach out and start a relationship with those agencies and what would you encourage them to do to, to foster those relationships with their local law enforcement and first responders? You have to reach out and I know in bigger cities it might be a little more difficult because sometimes those departments are going to be extremely busy, but no offense, law enforcement is not busy all day long. I worked in a uh, medium-sized Iowa police department, but I have to say, when I go back to the facility my wife worked at, I worked at that, that law enforcement agency for 20 years. That plant was in my jurisdiction for 20 years. Mm -hmm. I'd never been in it, okay? I'd been a lot of places within the city jurisdiction I worked. I'd never been in that facility. I had no idea what it looked like on the inside until such time as my wife got a job there and I kind of stopped by and, oh, well, this is you know, a lot different. Mm -hmm. uh, you've got to reach out to them. Um, and I'm a big fan of saying, you know what, if I'm a 24-hour operation, there's nothing wrong with reaching out at different times of the day because uh, it may be a night shift that responds to the incident because it occurred at night. You make arrangements, maybe an uh, officer, she could stop out in the middle of the night and get a sense of the layout of your facility. Mm -hmm. Now, uh, granted, you may not you know, get through every officer that works, but in a, in a mass incident like this, a lot of officers are going to respond, and you may get those officers who stopped at your facility to say, hey, you want to know that the cafeteria is in the back part of the building or the tool room is here, and they can help in that sense. Okay. Also, real quick, in a lot of jurisdictions, fire departments do inspections. It's good to make sure that, you know, they can convey uh, any information as to the layouts that they have on maybe fire inspections to make sure law enforcement has that access to them mm -hmm. if they have to respond in an emergency situation. Join us again next time when we'll be concluding our conversation with Brian Hammer to discuss the steps businesses should take in the aftermath of an active shooter incident.